Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 440. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 440 you're listening to. My guest today is Los Angeles-based mastering engineer Tess Greenham, who's worked with Trousdell, McCall, RF Shannon, Cami Patton, and Bell Saint. And she is part of Clearlight Mastering, which is a two-person mastering company made up of Tess and her father, former WCA guest and friend of mine, John Greenham. We're going to talk about the two of them working together and her journey in audio, and I look forward to you hearing that conversation. Tess Greenham coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about taking care of the clients instead of the gear. I don't know if I've talked about this before. I may have, so... I may be repeating myself here, and if I am, apologies, but I'm going to go forward with it anyway. Now, I know that I've talked about how there's different types of people in the world that, you know, some of them like to collect gear, and they're not actually, you know, really putting it to use. They just, they love the the fetishizing of it, and they just love, love to collect it. I'm going to take that a step further. I've met... And I know, and clearly I'm not going to name those people, but I know people who are really good at studio creation. They love planning the the whole thing. They love acquiring pieces of gear, sometimes making modifications to those those pieces of gear to make them, you know, sound better or, you know, or as they perceive it to sound better. You know, they get everything installed. It looks great. The wiring is just you know, spot on. And then they shift gears and they, within, you know, a short time. And when I say short time, I'm saying like three to six months of, you know, going through all of that effort, they will completely shift gears, rearrange their space and try a whole new set of gear and go through the whole thing again. Now, I am not going to criticize anybody for, you know, shifting their their focus or finding a smarter way to do things. But one thing that I've noticed that some of those people that I've encountered have in common is that they are great at doing the gear acquisition and implementation and setting up these concepts, but they're horrible at dealing with the clients. Really bad, like just really flaky. They don't really uh, follow through on emails. And if they do, there's always some excuse. Oh, you know, sorry that, you know, something, this or that happened, or I got, I got caught up in, you know, this or that. They just, they're so caught up in the gear that I think that they neglect the clients. Cause I, and I'm, I can't lay blame at their feet and say they don't like the clients or that experience, but I don't know. Maybe they get more pleasure out of, you know, playing with the gear and setting it up than they actually, you know, like doing the work. I don't know. It's really hard. It's really hard to put my finger on. 
this is their choice, right? How you deal with your business and your gear and all that crap, that's up to you. But I would encourage you to get a setup, dial it in to the best of your ability, to the best of your financial means, and get to work. Yeah, get to work. Reply to those emails, answer those phone calls, reply to those texts, let, those, let the people know who you're working with, what the hell is going on? Because you can't really keep a sustainable career going if you're just playing with your gear all the time and not taking care of the clients. I mean, look, gear's fun, people, I get it. You know, as much as I try to, you know, shoo it away in my life, somehow gear shows up in my life and sometimes um, it's fun. Now, as I get older and further down the path, I really can spot my, my own problems way before they happen at this point. And I've kind of settled into a particular setup and I'm even still trying to shrink that and, and, and get it smaller, more compact. I've, I've talked about that for years and I'm at a pretty good point. I could, uh, I could go down another level. You know, it's like the doctor says, you can always lose a little weight, right? I could, I could always use to lose a little gear, but back to the point, the point is, is that if you're spending your time just fetishizing over the gear all the time and not fetishizing how to get more clients, then I don't know, maybe you need to ask some hard questions. I'm not gonna say, you know, this is how you have to do it to be an audio professional. But, you know, I'll, I'll compare it to this. You know, I've been in a couple bands in my past and both of those bands had great work ethics. You know, rehearsing all the time, dialing it in, really making it making it tight so that we put on the best show that we can and know the songs backwards and forwards. And when I had attempted in other situations to play with others who didn't have the same work ethic, it really showed and it really was disappointing. So to me, this is this is in that world. You know, for me, the work ethic comes in the form of taking care of the clients, sending out the invoices, making sure you're getting paid on time, because it's not just about taking care of them, it's also about, you know, the end of the whole process, delivering the material, get, sending the invoice, getting paid, not letting checks sit around, making sure those checks make it into the bank accounts. It's a whole cycle, right? So think about it, ask yourself the hard questions. Am I spending more time fetishizing and playing with my toys than I am actually doing work and taking care of the clients? And once again, if that's what you're gonna do, that's fine. Ask yourself if that's what you really want to be doing. And if you're not getting enough work and you think spending more time playing with your gear is the answer, I don't think it's the answer. That's the long and short of it. I think it's you need to spend more time thinking about the business end of it because the gear is the gear. It will come. It will come and go, actually. And you know how to use it. And if you don't know how to use it, you'll of course, learn how to use it because there's plenty of time to learn how to use it. But the business, take care of the business. That is super duper important. Anyways, I don't want to I don't want to go down any further into the hole, but something to think about. Take care of your business. Quit playing with your toys and uh, yeah, get that work ethic in shape. All right. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. 
What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet, easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom. Very simply, just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Tess Greenham here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Tess, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. With the exception of Ryan Hewitt and mm -hmm. having interviewed his, his father, David, you're probably the only other child of one of the previous guests that I've interviewed. That's funny. Let's talk about where you grew up. To the best of my knowledge, and I, I probably know some of this stuff because I know your dad, but... Mm -hmm. You grew up in San Francisco, right? Indeed, yeah. The Windy City. No, I'm just kidding. But it really it is so windy there. Yeah. No, grew up in San Francisco, although I moved to Los Angeles when I was 16. So I kind of say that I, I finished growing up here. Yeah. What neighborhood did you all grow up in? The Richmond District. Mm, okay. 19th and Geary. Oh, yeah. That is a little windy out there. It is, yeah. Because you're you're not too far from the ocean. Yeah, it's funny. The I heard someone refer to it as the west side of San Francisco, which 
that's kind of how we in LA it's like there's the west side and the east side but I never hear anyone talking about it like that so someone from LA was like oh you grew up on the west side of San Francisco and I was like well yeah I, yeah I guess I, I guess did. yeah that's that's strange but you never go to the beach, you know, in San Francisco. I feel like, I don't know. Yeah. I never went to the beach. Anyway. I think we always refer to it as the different parts of town, you know. It's like the Richmond or the Sunset or the Mission. Yeah. Or downtown or the Hate. Are you in the city as well? No, I left San Francisco around 99, 2000 and moved okay. to Oakland and lived there for... 10 years after living in San Francisco for 12. And then I moved even further east to Lafayette probably about okay. 11 or 12 years ago. Nice. So that's how it's gone for me. So, and I'm, I'm going to just apologize in advance because your dad's going to come up a lot in this because okay. of not only, you know, the fact that he's your dad, but he's a friend and a former guest. So let's talk about your upbringing in terms of music for yourself. Did you have an interest in music or a musical instrument growing up? Yeah, I've always been a singer. I've always liked singing, but I never really, I, I had a hard time picking up any actual instruments because you have to practice. <laughs> so I, um, I actually played the trumpet for a little while when I was a kid, but, but I've, always, I've always been interested in music. Music was the one thing that I truly never got tired of. I was never over it. And I think I could sing all day <laughs> pretty much and not get tired of it. So I think, you know, when thinking about what I wanted to do or what I wanted to be when I grew up, when I was a kid, it was always like, well, it has to involve music, right? My mom was a, a singer in the symphony in San Francisco. Yeah, so it was a very musical upbringing. My dad was always taking me to his his various studios that he worked at, and all the gear. Yeah, <laughs> it was kind of. I grew up, and we had some. We had stuff in our house too. And I remember just like looking at this gear, like I have no idea what this does. I probably never will. Right. It it might as well have been a ham radio setup to you. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> But he was very, he really knew what to do with it. I always thought that was really cool yeah. that it was just totally foreign to me, but he knew exactly what everything did. Now you have a sister. I do. Younger yeah. sister, older sister? Older. She's five years older. Okay. And did you all share this passion for singing? She's got an incredible voice also. I, neither of us really, really do much singing professionally, but we grew up singing duets from musicals and stuff together and we never really did it in a public setting but there was always a lot of singing around the house mm -hmm. which is still how I do it. You know and I usually ask when did you become aware of the possibility of recording and I'm assuming that it came through exposure to studios via your dad. Yeah it's funny it's almost like because I was just always around it I almost didn't think about it very much it was just something that was was always there and but when did you like start listening to music and going how do they do this it was probably not until high school honestly when I moved down to LA and my dad started working in in our house he, he moved out of a professional studio and started working at a home studio in our living room that was really when I started to understand more deeply what he was doing and how everything worked and 
still even took me a few years after that. But I'd say, you know, that was around the time, you know, I moved down to LA and I didn't really know anyone here. And I just spent a lot of time sitting in my room, listening to music alone. <laughs> yeah. It was actually one of the best times in my life when looking back on it. And I think that was really when I started to develop my ear, I guess, and, and just listen more more intently to different parts of the songs and how they were fitting together and what was going on with each part and the different effects. And yeah, it was probably probably around then. So did your dad offer up the knowledge or did you seek the knowledge? What happened first? I think one of the reasons that we've wound up working together is that it wasn't ever something that he was like, I mean, you know, he, he, if I had questions, he answered them, but he wasn't ever like, this is what you're going to do. And, you know, (laughs) family business. Yeah. Right. It wasn't an expectation. And I think from his perspective, he's kind of like, I don't know if she even wants to know about this stuff. But eventually what happened was we started working together during the pandemic. Tell me about that. How did that materialize? So I was doing PR and social media management for bands and musicians, which I liked for a time and then kind of came to the conclusion that that wasn't for me. I mean, for one, I just, I hate being on social media all day. So that was kind of a problem. (laughs) But also I wanted to be involved more in the creative side with PR and social media. You're kind of handed this final project and here, promote it no matter what you think. I was kind of coming to the end of my time at that job and that actually lined up really well (laughs) with the start of the pandemic. So I was kind of starting to look for a new job and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I didn't really know anything about mastering My dad had still been working from home, but I didn't really know much. And I always saw it as this thing that was like, oh, I'll I'll never understand that. That's like so technical and Mm -hmm. not something that I'm going to be able to do. But yeah, then the pandemic happened and it was looking like it was going to be really (laughs) difficult for me to find another job. And he was like, well, his career was taken off and he needed the help. He was like, why don't you come work for me? So I started out doing more of the administrative stuff like invoicing and organizing, responding to emails. And essentially, I just sat in the studio with him for, well, it's been three years now, but I've been mastering stuff on my own for like the last two years, I'd say. For the first year, I really just sat in in the room and did stuff on my laptop and listened and trained my ear. and. At first, he would make some 0.1 of a DV at 10K, and I'd be like, no, I don't hear that. I don't, I don't hear that at all. <laughs> and then slowly over time, I could hear it. And now, I mean, 0.1 DV at 10K actually <laughs> makes a huge difference. So yeah, it was really actually great to have this time during the pandemic where it was just, there was nothing else to do. I couldn't really go anywhere. And so all I could do was learn how to master records. Yeah. Do you think that the early aspects where you were doing the administrative stuff, do you think that that was informative to you to see A, how the money works and B, Mm -hmm. just get a little bit of a grip on the business end of the art form? 
Yeah, definitely. And I think that that's so important because the business side is a huge part of it. You have to learn how to deal with people. There are a lot of different personalities that show up and you have to know how to deal with situations in a, in a calm manner, which yeah. isn't always easy. But yeah, I mean, I think definitely it was good to start out in the administrative side just to see how things work and, you know, what kind of files people need and what people expect, what it's like to work with, with other people, with the label people versus the managers versus the independent artists. And it's all different, really. Yeah. A lot of politics. Yeah. In terms of just asking for the money that is owed, is that? <laughs> well, <laughs> there's that. Yeah. Yes. Um, that's a whole, that's a whole other side of it. Right. But are you referring more to just the mechanics of working with other people and the deadlines that they state versus what is reality? And yeah. Well, I think one of the biggest learning curves for me has been dealing with people's notes. And so before I was mastering on my own, sometimes we'd, we'd get notes from people and I get all upset, like, on my dad's behalf. Like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> you know? Sounds sounds great. Don't criticize my dad. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think he's he's the best mastering engineer in the world, so I can't understand why anyone would think otherwise. But, yeah, the, the, the notes thing is tough because it's not personal. <laughs> it's in service of the song. So I'd get upset, and he'd be like, no, like, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> people are allowed to have opinions about about the master of their song and at the end of the day it's it's not personal although there are definitely good ways and bad ways of delivering notes i've seen it all it's harder to stomach when people are delivering notes in kind of a rude way but that's one of the things that i've just had to learn how to deal with and still respond yeah. <laughs> nicely to and are you mostly dealing with it over email or do people text? What are the methods of communication? Usually email. I prefer email. Some people do text. I think the younger people definitely prefer text over email, which I just find email's nice because then it's all in one place and you can look at it on your computer and text messages. It's like, there are too many messaging platforms now. You've got your text messages, your Instagram messages, your WhatsApp, your email. And if someone's like texting you notes, then it's kind of hard to, to keep track of, of everything that's going on. So I definitely prefer email, but it's also great to meet people in person. That doesn't always happen. But Do you think that the interactions with people is, is different in person? Like if they show up and say, okay, I got a couple of thoughts versus an email that could be misread or misunderstood for its tonality. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's one of the reasons I like to meet people in person is I think it's easy when you've only ever emailed with someone and you don't even know what they look like or sound like or, you know, what their personality is like at all. You're just reading these words on your computer screen and yeah there's no tone you have to kind of make up your own tone yeah I mean and that's a skill in and of itself is is getting a nice tone in an email that not everyone is great at but yeah I I, I think people are just always nicer in person than <laughs> than over email so well, well and and I'm assuming that for you all it, it goes beyond the tone of the email and the punctuation and the language used 
but it also goes down to specifically what they are saying in regards to the master, because mm -hmm. they are not necessarily speaking in the same language. They may not be saying, could we take down a DB at 10K? Yeah. They're saying interesting terms to describe things. Yes. Sometimes you have to decipher. I think when people don't like something about a master and they don't really have the language to explain it, they just say it's too compressed. So we get a lot of it's too compressed when we haven't like actually really used a compressor at all. So yeah, definitely one of one of those skills is is deciphering the notes. A lot of people are sending you notes based on the feeling that they're getting rather than anything technical. It is nice to receive technical note when someone just knows, oh, okay, can you take like a couple dB out of the 3K range? Those are the easy notes to address. The difficult ones are <laughs> the more abstract ones. <laughs> or sometimes they just don't like the overall sound of the master. And I'm, I'm sure that's hard to word from their side. Sometimes you just have to start completely over. I mean, the other thing that we've noticed a lot, we use a lot of, lot of analog gear. We have a pair of Pultex, and we've noticed that the kind of younger producer people don't really like that sound, and they're kind of used to everything being in the box and stuff mastered in the box. It, it is like a cleaner sound. The Pultex kind of smooth everything out. and I mean, I think it's an incredible sound and I, I, I can't understand why people wouldn't like it, but I think it freaks people out. So one of the fun things actually about working with the same artist for a long period of time is learning what they do and don't like. Okay, this person does not like the Pultex. <laughs> don't use the Pultex for this. And stuff like that. So yeah, it's it's fun. And as annoying as it can sometimes be to receive certain notes, <laughs> it, yeah. it's always a learning experience every time. And so I have to be thankful for that. Yeah. And it's, it's hard, I bet, because at the mastering end, you're really looking at the forest for the trees. And some mm. people, producers, mixers are so in, like they're deep into it. Yeah. And, and they're fixated on little elements that you're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. You've been listening to this song for too long. Yeah. Let go. Just let go. Yeah, exactly. Well, once again, I'll come back to the path here that you've taken, I think is so incredibly useful. I mean, you get a taste of the business with the billing and the administrative, and then you get a mm -hmm. taste of like just dealing with the clients, the different levels of clients, independent yeah. label, et cetera. But then just navigating people in this business is uh, very interesting and navigating those comments. So when you got into the audio part of it, what were the challenges there for you from understanding the gear to the workflow to the delivery? Were there any parts of that that you kind of scratched your head and was like, well, how does this even work? Yeah. One of the main challenges for me, I think, has been, <laughs> I get into this, I need to fix this mindset when I'm mastering something like, oh, let me fix this problem and let me fix this problem. Oh, this doesn't sound good. Let me fix this. And I think I get 
from the beginning, I, I get kind of locked on to that. And my dad's always like, you're not trying to fix the song. <laughs> you're, you're trying to go with the energy of the song and move forward with the artist's intention for the song. I mean, yeah, you, you are fixing things along the way, but that's not the main thing that you should be focusing on. And that is still a challenge for me and and has been. I think with the gear, I don't know. It was it was really just about training my ear first and then the gear was pretty you know there's a learning curve with every every piece of gear obviously and honestly I find plugins more confusing there's just there are so many and each one is so different and Mm -hmm. uh, so many little settings and things to figure out and time that you have to spend figuring these things out so I it's actually nice to just have your analog gear that you know really well and you know what you like. And my dad's into some kind of niche Scandinavian <laughs> EQs and stuff. <laughs> so there was definitely a learning curve. But I think truly the main challenge is realizing that I'm not trying to fix people's songs. I'm, I'm trying to amplify them and go with the energy of the song and make sure that the artist's intention is honored and it's in service of the song. Yeah, because I'm sure like when you were getting started and the song comes in and you hear it, you're like, oh, oh, we have to fix yeah. this element. Or do you think it pertained to the mixes and how you thought the mix should be presented mm. initially? What's the aspect that you wanted to fix? What were you trying to fix? It's different for every song. I think one problem on a lot of stuff that I work on is, is the low end. And I think a lot of people are working in rooms where they can't hear the low end very well. (laughs) And so they just slap a ton of low end onto things. And then I open it up in my DAW and I listen to it. And I mean, it's totally shocking. That happens a lot. And you do have to fix that, to be honest. Sometimes the, the clarity of the song is lost. In this digital age, people just put so many plugins on everything. And by the time it comes to mastering, there's not really much you can even do to clarify what's going on. But, you know, you have to kind of try. So, yeah, that's definitely, definitely part of it. Yeah, I always make it a habit of when I'm mixing a song and I'm sending it to mastering, I always send the hotter version of the mix as a point of reference to say, this is what the band approved. And now I've taken the limiting off and I'm giving you the lower level, much more headroom version of that same mix. So it gives the mastering engineer something to do. Are you finding that some people are not doing that? And as a result, they're just sending you like something that's just like, Oh yeah. Jumping over zero, like a, like a pole vaulter. Yes. No, there are so many mixes we get these days that are just absolutely slammed and we're like oh is there a quieter version that maybe you forgot to send us they're like no and I think I think that must be mixers not wanting the mastering engineer to change their mix too much I Mm. think there's a lot of that 
which is kind of frustrating because it's like, okay, then just don't send it to a mastering engineer. Just put out your mix, you know, that's fine. Do you have ways of countering that when you get it and then they say, nope, that's it? Like, what can you do? At that point, if it's really, truly super loud and they won't send you a quieter mix, we'll usually just, just master it in the box. Which feels to me like cheating because it's just, it's so easy to just, I mean, I don't know about easy, but you're just putting a couple plugins on something. But yeah, definitely when things are absolutely smashed, there's no point really in running them through the analog gear because it's going to, it's going to change the way that the mix sounds and probably will cause distortion and people don't like that. Yeah, it's kind of a problem. I think we see that more and more as well. But, you know, I have a lot of mix engineer friends. And when you talk to them about it, it's like, oh, well, we get this producer ref that's really loud and we have to make our mix match the producer ref. And so everyone's just kind of trying to live up to the loud reference that the person before them has created. So I, I try not to, to blame any one person too much. Yeah. So as far as what you've learned from your dad, I'm trying to imagine how that has been occurred over time. Mm. The two of you sitting down together listening, I assume that you're asking a lot of questions or if you're not hearing something or understanding something, it's simply just, hey, how does this work kind of a thing. But Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. What do you think has helped you in that process between the two of you as far as like, what has your dad done well to educate you on the nuances of mastering? Well, one of the reasons I feel very lucky to be learning from my dad is that 
I kind of have this theory that there aren't a lot of women in the audio engineering community because there aren't a lot of male engineers who are willing to explain things in a non-condescending kind of way. I feel like part of the reason I have responded so well to and understand what he's trying to teach me is that it's this safe environment where there's no judgment and there's no sexism and there's no, you know, and I'm his kid. So he's not concerned with, oh, well, she's going to, you know, take my secrets and run, you know, (laughs) it's a safe space for everyone. I think that he's happy to pass his his knowledge along to the younger generation. And I think in, in general, not just with me, he's trying to find other people to teach, which I think is great because he's been around for a while and he's got a lot of knowledge to share. And I think it's important that we keep spreading that. I mean, I think any parent would love to pass on the knowledge of the thing that they do. Like if my, you know, I have two boys, if, if in, either one of them took an interest in the world of audio, I'd be more than happy to guide them. But I definitely see your point about you finding a male mentor mm-hmm. that you can trust 110%. I mean, your dad could not be a better choice. I mean, yeah, it's quite an ideal situation. Not everybody is so lucky to have a dad who's done very well. I mean, that's, that's no, great. Absolutely. Yeah. In some ways I'm a Nepo baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And for the audience, if you don't know what that term means, essentially <laughs> nepotism, right? But you know, Hey, why not? I mean, if, if you, absolutely. if you have the opportunity, absolutely seeking it from your dad. I mean, tell me if you agree with me. I think that we're always learning and it's Mm -hmm. not like you can't have any other mentors or learn from others, but you're getting a great start with your dad. Yeah, no, definitely. I feel, I feel very lucky. And also we're family, so we can kind of be honest with each other, take each other to task for things, you know, there's no uh, putting on airs. We can just be honest. And if I have a question or don't understand something, I, I don't feel awkward asking. And yeah, he feels comfortable asking, you know, as, as his assistant, it's kind of like, hey, go do this. There's no, no worrying about your usual kind of boss employee dynamic, what's okay and what's not. Well, and I'm sure that there are points or areas where you start to see that, hey, dad, you're missing this element, whether that be marketing or Maybe it's a billing thing he may have overlooked. I mean, just like little things that you're catching now because you're seeing him from a distance now doing something you totally understand. Mm-hmm. And so does that ever come up where you're like, hey, don't forget about this or? Oh, yeah. I'm a very organized person. And so I kind of streamlined our uh, process for keeping track of projects and making sure things get done when they need to, you know, keeping track of due dates and taking photos of the analog gear settings so that, you know, if we need to recall them, we can. Invoicing, I I really, you know, it's hard when you're doing, from my dad's perspective, when you're doing all of the 
actual work to also then do the invoicing and make sure everything's organized and come up with a system for everything and respond to all the emails. It's it's really difficult to do it all. He went on a trip to Mexico City. This was a couple months ago. He was gone for like four or five days. And so I was just here doing everything by myself. And I was like, okay, this is really challenging. So yeah, it's helpful. I'm I'm happy that I've been able to like come on board and help him get things organized because it is so much easier to function when you know what's going on and you know what needs to get done and you know what's already done, you know, you know what needs revisions, all that. So yeah, that's definitely part of it. But also sometimes we get to collab on things and he'll be working on something and he's like, oh, I don't know, I can't get it quite right. And I don't, and you know, I can like share my ideas and, and, and vice versa. This happens when I'm working on songs too. So it's kind of fun to be able to, you know, mastering is very, you kind of have to focus in and do it on your own, but it's fun to then open it up and, and see what other people are hearing. And maybe one of us thinks of something that the other hasn't. I want to follow a line of thought with that in a minute, but I do, I want to ask you, could you get into the weeds with me a bit and tell me about the tools for organization, for tracking stuff that you find useful, like whether it's calendaring stuff or any kind of software that you would recommend to people to keep track of their projects? Yeah, we use this project organization software called Trello. Yeah. Which is is really great. I mean, I know there are all, all kinds of different things that people use, but Trello is nice. And we basically have various columns of, you know, this is general to do. This is what needs to get done today. This stuff has been sent. This stuff needs revisions and the revisions have been sent, so on and so on. This needs invoicing. Oh, this invoice has been sent. And so in Trello, you can create something called a card. So we'll have a card for each project and you write the name of the artist and the name of the album or song and the invoice number, how much the invoice is for. And then if you click into the card, it gives you like additional information. You can upload photos. So that's where we put the photos of the the settings on the analog gear that we used. And you can make notes, you can set a due date which is really nice. You can have different like labeled colors. You can get really into it. (laughs) And there are also like automated things that you can do. So when I put something in this column, like automatically set the due date to two weeks from now. And so it's taken a little while to like get that fully figured out, but I think we've got a system that works really well for us now. And it makes it a lot easier to be organized about that kind of stuff because you can just wake up and have your coffee and sit down. Okay, this is what needs to get done today. In the comments section, these are the revisions I need to do. You don't have to do so much searching through the email and text messages to to figure everything out. Interesting. Which is great. Yeah. I think the term that Trello and Notion and Asana which I think are all kind of variations of that theme where you have the board. I think it's the term is Kanban board, which one of my listeners had alerted me to the fact that I think that it it comes from a Japanese businessman Hmm. uh, many years ago that created that. What's it called? Kanban is is the term. So when you have those like cards in the columns and you you drag it over to the next column, is that, that's what you're doing? Yeah. I do that with Notion. 
Um, Notion. Okay. Notion is another one. Asana is another one. The other line of questioning that I, I wanted to follow up with you on was, where is it that you think you and your dad diverge on approach? Hmm. Like, have you ever encountered a project where he's like, well, I think we should do this. And you're, and you say, well, I disagree. I think we should do it this way and it should come out like this. Yeah. Does that happen? It does. I mean, you know, when I first started working, mastering my own project, I would play everything for him before I sent it off. I was still kind of figuring it out. So I just wanted to make sure that I was sending off something that sounded okay. And, you know, he, in the beginning, it was usually like he would have some adjustments and I would pretty much always agree. But as time went on, there was kind of a time period where he was just like, yeah, this sounds really good. Send it off. And then eventually it was kind of that every time. And so I stopped showing him everything or playing him everything before I sent it off. But if I'm struggling with something, I will play it for him and get his thoughts. But oftentimes <laughs> when I do that, you know, I'm like really struggling with something. I've been working on it for a really long time and I get it to a place where I think I like it. But, you know, you're in this spot where you've been listening to this song for so long that you can't even hear anything anymore. Which is when you need to take a break. And that's one thing I've been trying to do more is take breaks. Anyway, so it, it does happen, though, where I'll I'll play him something that I've been working on for a while. And, and he's like, oh, well, maybe you should do this. And he'll change something. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm not doing that. <laughs> yeah. And it takes on extra significance being that you're his daughter. Like, yeah. it's kind of like hey, what if you put on these clothes kind of a thing? It's like, Dad, <laughs> what? don't be such a dork. Exactly. Absolutely not. Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's funny. So yes, that, that definitely happens. And again, because we are family, we're, we're not afraid to tell each other our honest opinions about things. Well, so this collaboration where essentially it started out as you assisting then it's mm -hmm. collaboration, but you're doing projects on your own. So the growth is happening, it seems, at a, at a good rapid pace from my perspective. Yeah. I, I may be completely wrong about that. So in looking ahead, do you see a time where, like, how long do you think this collaboration will run? Because it seems like you're already doing stuff on your own. So kind of bring it back to the family aspect. Leaving the nest seems inevitable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think my dad's idea with it all is that we have this business together and eventually he will retire someday and then I'll just take it over. I think we're working together for the for the foreseeable future. At the moment, we're trying to get a studio in, in Mexico City going. And so I think what will happen is he will transition to spending more time in Mexico City and I'll have the LA studio here. And so we'll we'll still be working together, but not not in the same same place. Mm. But I don't know. I, I like working with him. I mean, I definitely want to learn more about mixing. And at some point I'd like to make music of my own at some point. But I think it's I think it's cool to have learned about mastering first. I mean, I my my dad was telling me that's what they used to in the olden days, <laughs> they'd get hired at a studio and they'd get sent to the mastering department first to learn or, you know, maybe after being a, a runner, 
they would get sent to the mastering department to learn how to hear things and train your ear and just the technical aspect of everything. So yeah, I don't I don't know what the future holds. I guess, you know, it'd be cool to work with some other people at some point, but I also I like this setup quite a lot. Yeah, I'm I was going to ask, do you see a future where you have a studio outside the home cuz you all are still running the studio from from your house, right? Yeah, we're actually in the process of moving the studio out of the house into a building in Hollywood, which is <laughs> Hollywood. <laughs> it's a little scary, but it's also, um, it's, it's a really nice studio and it's, it's kind of high, high up in a building. So it's, it's definitely safe and secure, but I think it's time to get the studio out of the house. It's a little too comfortable. It'd be nice to have a reason to put on real pants and leave the house every day, you know? It's probably good to get out of your pajamas to do the yeah, job. Yeah, although I probably will keep a pair of pajamas there if I'm being honest. Yeah. <laughs> you got to be comfortable for this kind of work, you know? Yeah, it, it's kind of, it's time to get the get the studio out of the house. I mean, in some ways it's really nice because especially working with major labels, people want things right away. And they're like, hey, I'm sending you this album. You have two hours until we need to turn it in, which is crazy. Wow. That is just how it is sometimes. Again, mostly with major labels. And so when you're at home, you're in your room. When you get this email, you walk into the living room, you make it happen, you know. And so when you are out of the house, there's a bit of a drive that has to occur, which is is fine. It's nice also to have a space when you're working from home, you're kind of working all the time. And so if you get an email and something has to be done, you don't really have any excuse not to do it. <laughs> you know, you're always thinking about work stuff and you always feel like you're at work, which is fine because it's a fun job and it is just my life now. But also I think it's healthy to have a little separation between the work and the home. You know, I always ask my guests about their approach or philosophy to the financial end of this business. Mm -hmm. So do you consider yourself a saver or do you like to spend or do you have a grip on that? You said earlier that you find yourself to be quite an organized person. Does that organization help control your money? I like to think I'm a little bit of both. I definitely like to spend. I like to have nice things and go out to nice meals and stuff, but I also... I'm also always, always saving. So I like to think, yeah, there's, there's a balance. I could probably spend less. I feel like my main, my main thing that I spend a lot of money on, honestly, is ordering food. Yeah. I'm so, I'm always ordering food because it's hard to find the time, you know, again, when you're working from home, you kind of wake up and you're at work and then you're there all day. And then cooking seems like such a secondary, like, I don't have time for this activity. Yeah. Plus you get to that point where you're like, damn, I'm hungry. Yeah, exactly. I need to eat you're like, now. I need to do something now. Yeah. Yeah. Been there for sure. Yeah. And you're like, ah, I don't want to cook. Yeah. Strangely enough, over the years, that always seems to be the one thing my wife and I, like, we look at each other and we're like, how did we spend that much eating out? It like, yeah, it doesn't seem like we go out that much, but in reality, we kind of do. 
Mm-hmm. Even though we cook at home like a ton, but yeah, it's a hard expense. It is. Because you want to have fun, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I like going out and eating in, in cool restaurants or mm-hmm. or hole-in-the-wall places, but it adds up for sure. Yeah. Do you have a, a, a problem with obsessing about gear like everybody else? I think my dad kind of does that for the both of us. He's kind of the, the decision maker when it comes to, I defer to him because he really knows a lot about that stuff and... I feel like he, he's been around for so long that he knows what's going to work and, and what's not. But definitely when he gets excited about buying a new piece of gear, then I get excited about it. <laughs> you know, but we've got a pretty good chain right now and we're trying really hard to not buy too much gear this year. That was That was one of our goals. Yeah. In terms of the work that you do, like, percentage of work that you do through analog gear versus in the box. Could you quantify that? I mean, we usually do a combination of both. So we'll we'll set something up and and sometimes we'll put a couple plugins on it and the on the front end and run it through the analog gear. And then we'll bring it into a new session and kind of finish it up in the box with any additional EQ or mm. whatever other plugins we want to use and a limiter. And so it's it's pretty much always a combination unless, you know, like I said, sometimes if the mix is just really loud and there's not much point in running it through the analog gear, we'll do we'll do in the box, but I I rarely, like I said, I don't know, there's something about it that feels kind of kind of weird to me. <laughs> Which it's not. I'm not I'm not judging anyone who masters in the box, but for some reason I I feel I feel wrong doing it. Yeah, you feel like it's cheating. Yeah, a little bit. Well, we're about out of time. I want to thank you for making time for me. It's great to talk to you. It's funny, like, as I said before we started recording, I've met you in passing because before you all left the Bay Area and went to Los Angeles, John and I were around each other a fair amount. Yeah. And he definitely has mastered some stuff for projects that I've mixed in the past. So it's good to finally have a good chat with you yeah, absolutely. So for the audience, I'll put a link in the show notes to Clearlight Mastering. Now, this is, of course, the the joint effort between you and your dad. Mm-hmm. So people can check that out. Yeah, I can also um, send you a link. I have a Mastered by Tess Greenham Spotify playlist. Not that you can really hear the quality of a master <laughs> very well on Spotify, but <laughs> gives you a general idea. Yeah, no kidding. And uh, I'll include a link to your Instagram account, which is just simply Tess Greenham that that we'll put in there. Username is always available for some reason. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Well, awesome. Well, Tess, nice to nice to chat with you, and thanks again. Great to have you on. No, you too. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. All right. Take care. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for. 
giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to CaliAudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Tess Greenham here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Tess. And if you like the show and you like to hear more interviews like that, head on over to your podcast aggregator and make a five-star review to let others know that there's something cool going on here. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew that includes Anne-Marie Plow on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the magic voice of Mr. Chuck Smith. Feel free to send me an email, matt at workingclassaudio.com. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And of course, until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. (laughs) 